0: Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Just those five verses there in the middle of Acts chapter 5. While uh, you're turning there, before we read that passage together, let's pray together. Our Father, we... Come before you to hear from you, to um, to hear your word, to hear you speak to us through the scriptures. We long to know you better, uh, to uh, experience you more fully uh, through uh, your word and by faith. We long, Father, to live for you more fully in the world. And so we pray that you would speak to us now, that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would. Um, Humble us before your throne of grace, that we would receive your mercy, and that we would be uh, more fully transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus. Father, use your word by your Spirit to that end this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, And they were all healed. Is the church dismissible? Uh, To dismiss something, right, is to treat it as unworthy of serious consideration. uh, To deliberately cease to think about, to ignore, or to overlook, or just to pass over as kind of a trifle. Um, Is the church worthy of our serious consideration? Is is the church worthy of the world's serious consideration? We we have the message of salvation through the Messiah, but, but what is it that might compel the world to at least consider the weight of that message? Well, Acts is, at least in part, about the witness of the church. It's about the apostolic message. It's about the spirit indwelt Community. It's also about how the world responds to that message. There are lots of ways uh, the world responded in the book of Acts, but however it responded, it, it it never simply dismissed the church. So I wonder, as we think about the church today, is the church today dismissible? Um, do, do we give the world nothing worthy of serious consideration? The world around the early church responded in in hatred, uh, in fear, and esteem, or even at times in conversion. Um, One thing they were not, though, was indifferent. Do do we give the world uh, cause to to hate us or esteem us or join us? Or are we dismissible? And if so, is there anything that we can do about it? Well, this morning we're looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Uh, And we're going to start by looking at the response of the world to the church in these verses, and then ask, why did the world respond in those ways? And then finally, we'll look at how Jesus shapes and empowers uh, our witness. Uh, If you want to follow along, you can uh, turn to the back of your bulletin. There's an outline there that follows each of those three points. So first, we're going to look at the response of the world. Of the world. <laughs> is the world watching? Uh, I, I, I want to make a, what I think is a simple observation, which is that the world is watching. Uh, not everybody, that's true, but some. Uh, the world takes notice in the book of Acts, to be sure, right? From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, the church gets attention. Uh, Maybe not always the kind of attention that we would like. Sometimes that attention means persecution. At other times it means conversions. Uh, Most of the time it means some mixture of the two from town to town. Uh, But all the time there is some kind of attention, some kind of uh, watching, some kind of response to the church. Uh, Here in Acts chapter 5 there is fear in verse 13. uh, You see it there. None of the rest dared to join them. And there's also esteem. Uh, but the people held them in high esteem. And then there's again conversion, verse 14: more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, I think we often believe uh, what is really a lie, which is that nobody, nobody's actually paying attention. Uh, nobody is paying attention. But that's not true, right? We live our lives before others. Uh, Jesus said, At one point, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Peter says something similar. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is true on on a number of levels, right? Sometimes uh, the world notices what we do as an institution, uh, both good and bad, uh, you know, when the church screws up, the world is there to report on it. Most of the time, just watch the news. Um, but the world notices what we do as individuals as well, uh, n- not as a monolith, right? But but our friends and our neighbors are are watching. Our, our classmates and coworkers are watching. Our bosses and teachers are watching. Uh, you, you may not believe this, and they might not admit it or even realize it, but it's true. And I, I don't mean that they're stalking us. I I don't mean that they're sitting there taking notes, just waiting for us to do something good or bad. Uh, But as Jesus says, we live our lives before others all the time. Even when you think no one is noticing, right? other people see the way you live. I remember uh, when I was in college, I was leading a Bible study in my dorm room, and uh, someone used to write... disparaging remarks about Christians on the whiteboard on my door. I was an RA at the time. And there would always be these little remarks about Christians. And uh, it wasn't good attention, but it was attention. Somebody was noticing, right? Somebody was aware of what was going on. Um, I I remember uh, when Deborah was pregnant with Thomas, she was teaching at a school for pregnant and parenting teenage girls. So all the girls in this school were either pregnant or had a child. And um, they asked Deborah... About Deborah and I, right? And so she began to tell them, and uh, the girls uh, marveled, and uh, she said, you know, first we we met, and uh, then we got married, and uh, then we had kids, you know, in that order, uh, meeting, marriage, and then kids. And one of the girls, no joke, one of the girls actually said, it's like a fairy tale. Now, I'm pretty sure that nobody would say our life is like a fairy tale today, (laughs) But you get the point, right? Uh, We live our lives before others. The way you live matters. The world is watching, and the world will respond in some way. In Acts 5... 13 to 14, we see three responses, right? There was fear, none of the rest there join them. There was esteem by all the people. There was conversion, multitudes of both men and women. And, of course, if we go beyond this passage, before and after, we see the additional response in acts of persecution, threats, legal action, physical harm. Those are all different responses to the church and to its witness. So the question is not, will the world respond, but how? Uh, It it may patronize us as irrelevant. It may attack us as a threat. It may denounce us as killjoys or slander us as hypocrites. Uh, It may seek to assimilate us. Right? Sometimes the church uh, loses itself in sort of the social and political agenda of its day. Of course, if the world can subordinate us to its agenda, then the church uh, may be noteworthy to the world, even receive praise and recognition because its distinctive message has been lost. Right? It's just a cog in sort of the social machine of society. So uh, many of these right, are just ways of ultimately dismissing the church and its message. The church is seen as irrelevant or arrogant or just another part of the machine. Uh, then uh, the unique message of the church right, doesn't have my attention. Um, I dismiss it. I ignore it. I, I categorize the church as something I don't really need to listen to. It's not really that important. Um, something that's not worth my time. But notice uh, the way that the world responded to the church in Acts chapter 5. Uh, again, fear, esteem, conversion. The question is, why? Right? What, what is it that was going on in the early church that, that so gripped the people around it? That brings us to the, the second point, uh, the witness of the church. We'll spend a little more time here. Um, the church had gained a reputation in that day, a good reputation. Uh, church has a reputation today and normally not so good, right? If you just ask random people what they think of the church, uh, the church is sometimes seen as being backward or bigoted or an enemy of science and learning or pietistic and hypocritical. Uh, and so we might begin to wonder, well, is, it doesn't really even matter, right? Is it really important uh, what the world thinks of the church? Do we, do we care what people outside of our walls think about us? I mean, what difference does it make after all? Does it really matter? If we even ask the question about what the world thinks of the church, does that mean we're somehow capitulating to the spirit of the age, um, that we're kowtowing to the whims of the world? Well, of course, the, the answer is, is no, right? We, we can't, it's true, we can't control what the world thinks of the church, uh, but, and we shouldn't be controlled by what the world thinks of the church, but we need to ask the question, right? What, what does the world think of us and why? Um, Peter clearly had a reputation in his day, a good one. Uh, look at verse 15. Verse 15, people are laying their sick in the streets if only Peter's shadow might fall on some of them. Right? The world obviously thought quite a bit of Peter, uh, maybe more than they should have, right? But they, they, they looked at this man and they, they marveled. In fact, the apostles' reputation uh, had already burst the boundaries of Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus had promised right, that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, well, they're not at the ends of the earth yet, but look at verse 16. The people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Right? Again, it's not the ends of the earth, but it's beyond the borders of Jerusalem already. Uh, people outside are hearing about the work of the church, the witness of the church. And so the the reputation of the church is, it is important. Uh, You know, Paul says in uh, 1 Timothy that elders must be well thought of by outsiders. Uh, He he taught that an elder's reputation with the world around him was meaningful. It was important. Uh, When when Paul gives instructions to the church in Titus, he says things like uh, that they're to act in certain ways so that the word of God may not be reviled. Uh, and so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, which is to say that our behavior, the way we live, adorns or decorates or, or beautifies the gospel as we share it with people. And so the way we live and act shapes what people think of us as Christians and therefore what people think of the gospel, which means your reputation is important Uh, And our reputation is important because the reputation of the gospel is important. What that means is this, what what the world thinks of us matters. Again, we can't control it and uh, we shouldn't be controlled by it, uh, but we must be mindful of it. The world is watching. What they see makes a difference. So the question is, well, what do they see? Well, what did they see in Acts chapter 5? In Acts chapter 5, they saw signs and wonders, right? Uh, They they saw miraculous healings performed by the apostles, uh, which maybe brings up another question in our minds, which is, uh, is that what we need, right? Do we need uh, signs and wonders if we're going to sort of call the world to Jesus in our day? Well, it's true uh, that that in response to these signs and wonders in Acts chapter 5, there were multitudes added to the church. Uh, but they were added ultimately because of the message, the message of the apostles, right? The apostolic witness to Jesus. It's faith in Christ that saves people, not faith in miracles. Uh, people aren't meant to join the church because they believe in miracles. They, they join the church because they believe in Jesus. And, and, of course, not everyone who was healed physically in that day or in Jesus' day in the Gospels, not, just, not everyone who was feel healed physically was saved spiritually, Um, those who were added to the church were added because of their faith in the name of Jesus. And lots of others, of course, rejected that message. They even persecuted the church. Some religious leaders in Jesus' day saw his miracles and said, he has a demon. His miracles, right, didn't always provoke faith. In fact, sometimes they provoked opposition. And so signs and wonders are no fix-all, Sometimes we mistakenly think that if only we could do some of that stuff, right, then people would flock to Jesus. Well, no, not really. Uh, they didn't always do that in Jesus' day. They didn't all do it in the Apostles' day. And we need to stop longing for some, some golden age gone by or, or even pretending that it's still going on. And, and make no mistake, right? We, do live, we live in a different age than the Apostles'. And I need to take time to make a few points here. Um, first, sometimes we think that miracles, you think about miracles, you think about miracles in the Bible, and you begin to think that miracles are just the normal fare in Bible times. Right? That they just happened every day in, in, uh, throughout the Scriptures. That, that actually isn't the case. And... Um, Once you get past the the difficult question of how do you even define what is and what is not a miracle, which is not as easy a question as you might think to answer. Leaving aside that discussion, uh, I want you to think about this. Think about the Old Testament. From Abraham to Malachi, right? the last book written in the Bible, Malachi. From Abraham to Malachi, there are about 71 miracles recorded in 2,000 years of time. Uh, That's about one miracle every 28 years which is hardly the norm. One miracle every 28 years. But then you have to realize, okay, uh, those miracles were not evenly spread out. Uh, Twenty-five of them happened during the life of Moses. Uh, Twenty-two happened during the lives of Elijah and Elisha, which means over two-thirds of the miracles recorded in the Old Testament happened during the, the lives of three men, which probably leaves... About 1,900 years for the remaining 24 miracles, which means there's about one miracle every 80 years. Now, I realize not every miracle that happened must have been recorded in the Bible. Other things could have happened that weren't written down. But the point is this. Miracles did not just happen at random all the time. As you read through the Bible, they were clustered around God's great redemptive acts in history, things like the exodus and the exile. They had a purpose. Uh, their purpose was to authenticate God's messengers and their message. And in, in fact, this is what we see happening as we come into the New Testament as well. Uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, which we've looked at a few weeks ago, uh, tells us that, uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him. Right, so what, did, what was the point of his miracles? One point was to attest to who Jesus was and to what Jesus said. It was God's way of showing this, what this man says is true. Well, look at verse 12 in, in chapter 5. God is doing miraculous things through whom? Through the hands of the apostles. The, the apostles exclusively? Well, we'll no. As we go through Acts, we'll see some other people uh, doing uh, miracles miracles or performing miraculous acts. But... The apostles primarily, yes. Verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In, in fact, Paul uh, calls miracles the signs of a true apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. So what, what are miracles? What are signs and wonders? They're the signs of a true apostle for Paul. They demonstrate who he is. Um, The writer of Hebrews says that the message of salvation was declared by the Lord, by Jesus, and attested to us by those who heard, so the apostles and others in the first generation, those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. See, the signs and the wonders attested to the truthfulness of the apostolic message, just as they bore witness to the truthfulness of Moses in his day. And this is one of the reasons why we do not have miracles today the same way we did during the times of the apostles or during the time of Moses, because there's no new message to attest as true. The way signs and wonders function for Moses or for Jesus or for the apostles was to attest that their message was true this new message that each of them were, were, were bringing, well, we don't have a new message from God to be so attested, right? And the apostles' message, which is the one that we have, has already been attested by the miracles that they performed. Okay, well, where does that leave us then? Uh, think, think again of the people of Israel. After the Exodus, God provided for his people by sending bread from heaven. You remember that? And manna in the wilderness. Uh, this miraculous provision of God. But that was never, either before or after, God's regular means of providing bread for His people. So Psalm 104, how does God provide bread for His people? Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, even bread to strengthen man's heart. Where does bread come from? It comes from the ground, not from heaven. <coughs> And how does does it get there? God causes the grass to grow. God causes the plants to to grow. Um, God's normal means of providing bread is causing the plants to grow, not sending bread from heaven. And guess what happened? You know, the Israelites, they, they received bread from heaven for 40 years in the wilderness. Guess what happened as the Israelites went into the promised land and began eating from the fruit of that land? The first day they ate of the fruit of that land, the manna stopped. Bread from heaven was, a, was this temporary provision for a short time in the life of Israel. The normal was the mundane, not the miraculous. Now, we shouldn't draw the wrong conclusion from this, that, that God himself, uh, that, right, uh, that God is absent when m- miracles are absent. Right? God himself provides through the mundane. We shouldn't equate the miraculous with God's activity. Right? God is active when miracles happen, but he is active all the time in providence, and in redemption as well. But it's there in the mundane that we live. Uh, Our lives are more like Ruth or even Esther than they are like Exodus. Faith might look back to the Exodus or back to the resurrection of Jesus. Faith might look forward to uh, the return from exile or to the return of Jesus. But life in the now is fairly routine, ordinary, Faith is lived out in the context of the mundane. So where does that leave us then? Can we hope for uh, miracles when times are tough or not? Uh, well, James tells us to, uh, that the prayer of the, the righteous man is powerful and that if we are sick, we ought to pray in the hope that God might heal us. But then we leave God's response in His hands. Uh, He he might heal through very mundane means, right, doctors and medicine and things like that. Uh, He might heal through miraculous means, means that are unexplainable to us. Or he might leave the trial there for his own good purposes, right? If there's a miracle, we praise God. If there's no miracle, we praise God just the same because we know that he's at work and we trust his plan in the midst of it all. Okay, we'll we'll bring all this back to our text in Acts chapter 5. Does that mean, right, if we're saying, yeah, miracles are not the normal fare for today, they were for specific times in uh, the history of God's people for specific reasons, does that mean that we're just out of luck then when it comes to our witness? Uh, Remember, the apostles were performing these amazing miracles such that the whole world took notice. Well, what have we got? Well, let's look more closely uh, at what caused the world to take notice in their day and ask how that might be just as true in the mundane as it is in the miraculous. So what caused the world to take notice? Why why did the world fear? Uh, Why did they not dare to join uh, God's people? Why why did the world esteem them? Well, verse 13 says, none of the rest dared join them. And uh, this can't mean, actually, some say that this means that the rest of the believers didn't dare join the apostles. So that's the way some people take this uh, verse: The rest of the believers didn't dare join the apostles uh, because uh, the church was afraid of persecution. Right? Um, but as you read through Acts, the emphasis is on the unity and the witness of all believers. And the church, just in uh, Acts four twenty nine, prayed for boldness, and we're told that they all received that boldness, and so continued to speak as they received, as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so it would be a little odd if that's what this is saying here in uh, five. Twelve and thirteen. So, what it's probably getting at is that they were all together in Solomon's portico, uh, all the believers, the apostles, and everyone else. But none of the rest dared join them. Meaning, many of the onlookers kept their distance. The people around them were were afraid. Uh, now, some people say, "No, that doesn't work because verse fourteen says many did join them." So, how can verse thirteen say? People didn't dare join them, and verse 14 say many did join them. Is that somehow contradictory uh, between those two verses? Well, no. Right? The gospel is polarizing. Uh, some people hated Jesus, and other people flocked to him. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says of the church that God, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The the gospel is polarizing. To those who receive it, it, it is the good news of life. To those who reject it, it's really the message of their condemnation. Because if you reject Jesus' death for sin, that means your own death for your sin. And so it's true. In Acts 5 13 to 14, uh, we're told some people did not dare to get near the church, and other people joined the church in droves. Both things were true. Well, why did some people not dare to get close? And I think this is important. What, what just happened earlier in this chapter? Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. Now, as an aside, you know, when we read of the the healing miracles in verses 12 through 16, we want them, right? We wish that we had them. Some people claim that they do, right? And when we read about the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira a few verses earlier, we want to skip that part of the passage. But they go together. God's judgment and his mercy go together. Signs of his judgment and signs of his mercy went together. You know, one thing. One day, all things are going to be made new. This world will be perfected. There will be no more crying, no more tears. What day will that be? It will be the day of judgment, right? When Jesus returns to judge the earth and make all things new. They go hand in hand. And so when we uh, demand miracles as Christians... Um, realize that what we're doing is we're demanding signs of God's judgment as well because both are here as a foretaste of things to come. They go together. Yes, God was uniquely at work among his people in the book of Acts. He was uniquely at work among his people in, to show both mercy and judgment. Uh, now, none of the rest dared join them. Now, if you knew that there was this community of people where uh, it was possible that if you stepped out of line, you might be struck dead by the hand of God, uh, would you join? Or would you steer clear? What what was that story about, though? I mean, we talked about it last week. What was that story about? In part, that story is really about the the purity of the church because of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. The Spirit was there to purify the church. Is the church called to be pure today? Does the Spirit still dwell in our midst? Others held the church in high esteem. Why? Look at at all these miracles, right? Verse 12, verse 16, Many signs and wonders, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Verse 16, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You know, one of the purposes of miracles uh, is not, the way we sometimes think of it, to break the normal order of things, but to restore it, right? to, to be a sign of the restoration of all things. Many miracles right, were acts of love and care, these indiscriminate acts of mercy to all who came, regardless of where they came from. Well, is the church today called to be a sign of the coming age and its love and care? Are we called to be indiscriminate in our mercy? You know, Fundamentally, what people were responding to, in, in, even in the book of Acts, was not the miracles themselves, but what the miracles pointed to, that the purity and the love of the church. Uh, they were heightened in that day as a sign of uh, the age to come. They will be perfected on the last day when Jesus returns, but there to be these continually, continuing realities in our lives, right? Purity and love, passionate purity and indiscriminate mercy. Uh, purity alone, right? Uh, if, if the church is pure but not merciful, not loving, uh, tends to make us look standoffish, arrogant, maybe even hypocritical. But love and care or, or mercy alone tends to just make us enablers, right? Uh, where we're just whatever you want, we're just whatever you need. Um, Either one on their own is actually not very compelling. But together, right, they embody the holiness of God, passionate purity and indiscriminate mercy, purity and love. Now, you know, I think, uh, probably in every generation, we love shows of power. Right? We love shows of power like miraculous healings. And uh, we, we don't have that. So w- where we tend to go as a church is we tend to go to other kinds of power. Right? Political power or apologetic power, intellectual or academic power. We try to be cool. We try to be artsy. We try to be culturally relevant. And all of those are just different ways of trying to use the world's power to woo the world to the church, which actually doesn't make any sense and it will never work. See, a real demonstration of the power of God would be living in purity and love. Because that's something we cannot do. That is something we are powerless to do in our own strength. That's something we will fail at every time if we just try to pull up our, our bootstraps and be pure and loving. Passionate about purity, indiscriminate in mercy. That's, that's Matthew 5.16, right? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That, that light that Jesus talks about is not... Political or academic or or cultural prowess—it's living in purity and love. That that might be demonstrated in the political sphere, or in the academic sphere, or in the cultural sphere. Great, but it's the purity and love in those things that shows the power of God. Where do you need to increase purity in your life? Where where are you living in impurity or in sin? Where do you have opportunities for love and mercy? That, that, that may mean big things, right? That may mean, you know, everything from volunteering in a soup kitchen to starting an NGO to solve some world problem. If you're really smart, you can do that. That's great. But whether it means those big things or not, it must mean little things, right? How can I start showing mercy and love to my family and my coworkers and my classmates? Who, who do I bump into every day, uh, especially the, the down and out, or those on the edge of despair, or those outcasts even from the world? Where do I bump into people every day who just need the love and mercy of Jesus? Passionate purity and indiscriminate mercy. How do we get there? Brings us to our last point about, about the person of Jesus. Uh, Peter here in Acts 5 is clearly representing Jesus in what he does, right? The crowds flocked to Jesus for healing. Uh, the crowds flocked to Peter. Uh, people sought to touch the hem of Jesus' garment for healing. Uh, people seek to be touched by Peter's shadow. Uh, Jesus was a polarizing person, and the early church is polarizing, right? Some people don't dare to get close. Others join by the multitude. And so if, if you think that your purity and love are going to draw people to Jesus, you're probably going to be pretty disappointed. Um, We're not that pure. Uh, We're not that loving. We fail at both of those things daily. We fail at representing Jesus well. It's, It's only because we represent Jesus that we, the church, and we as Christians, our little purity and love will be a compelling apologetic for the gospel message. Only because we represent Jesus. If we, if we, it will fail if we are pointing people to ourselves. We're saying, "Look at me! Right? Look at how pure I am. Look at how loving I am." Uh, if we, the, the, the point of our purity and love, um, our poor, ugh, our purity and love, is weak, is broken. So, if we're pointing to ourselves rather than beyond ourselves, right, we're going to fail every time. We need to point people beyond ourselves to the one who is pure, to the one who is loving. Jesus is full of passionate purity and indiscriminate mercy. He he knew no sin as he walked on this earth. He was so bold as to even challenge his enemies at one point, John 8, 46. He says, which one of you convicts me of sin? He was so sinless, no one had any dirt on him. Unlike us, he was untouchable. He was blameless. He was pure. And he loved us. Right, His love uh, was so radical uh, because he loved the impure. Right? The pure one loved those who were impure. He loved the, the drunks and the hookers. He loved the thieves and the swindlers. He even loved the rich and the self-righteous. Uh, in fact, the only time in Matthew, Mark, or Luke that we're told Jesus loved anyone was when he looked at the rich young man Right, the rich young man who had just boasted that he kept the whole law from his youth, and Jesus looked on him and loved him. Jesus was perfectly pure, but his love was such that he loved the impure. He loved us so much that he took on our impurity. He went to the cross bearing sin and guilt and shame, bearing our impurity. And he rose as a part of a new creation, a creation that will be marked by his purity and love, where there will be no sin. No, uh, no selfishness, but only uh, passionate purity and indiscriminate love. Now, uh, you may not be one of those people that Jesus loved during his earthly life. You may not be a, a, a drunk or a hooker or a thief or a swindler. You may not be rich and self-righteous, but you are a sinner no less. And the message of the apostles was that Jesus died at the hands of sinful people, but God raised him from the dead as ruler of this world and the next, that all who trust in him will receive the forgiveness of their sins. And so the apostles say in Acts 16, right? believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as we believe in the resurrected Jesus, as we repent of our impurity and lack of love, as we trust in the cross and in the resurrection, we receive Jesus' spirit of purity and love. We receive the Spirit. He he takes up residence within us. He transforms us into the image of Jesus. And our lives begin to reflect the purity and love of another. Our lives point people, not to our goodness, but away from ourselves to the one who is goodness himself. And so again, where, where is there impurity in your life? God says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Take your impurity to God, right? Confess it. Lay it at the feet of Jesus and he will cleanse you. He will cleanse you and make you whole. Where is their lack of love? Take your lack of love to God. Confess it and he will cleanse you. And then allow that cleansing love of Jesus to, to move your heart. to capture your imagination, to propel you outward in loving purity and in pure love. And as we begin to be passionate about purity and indiscriminate in mercy, even in the little things, even in the inconsequential moments, our light will shine and our Father will be glorified. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we do want you to be glorified and we confess that we are often uh, bad witnesses to your grace. Uh, we often uh, live in selfishness uh, and impurity rather than pursuing you and loving uh, those around us. Uh, we thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for his mercy to us in the cross. We pray that, that, that by your spirit, you would shape our hearts according to that mercy, that, 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 that the mercy we see in the cross would both uh, mold us and motivate us to go out and live for you in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.